0: theater, or now increasingly with books, you have trailers that anticipate the next movie or book to come in the series. So what has just preceded is kind of a trailer for next week's sermon, I anticipate. I haven't written next week's sermon yet, or I would forward it into this week because it ties in with the things we've just been talking about. We don't have a lot of pews, we don't have a lot of pews, we don't have a lot of Bibles left in the pews, and I've been thinking for years about buying more but it relates to privilege and my irritation with privilege because we have so many versions of translations available to us but the NIV decided to go out and quit printing the one you got in your they upgraded to a new version of the Bible and I'm thinking, come on we don't need a new version of the Bible let Eric and may use the money to put out a version of the Bible for the people they work with, so I, we can 't buy this one anymore, so we can only buy an upgraded version so i and I hate spending money and throwing away the bible but it 's an issue of privilege and and you know uh, emily 's prayer about privilege and economic privilege and which kind of in the u s correlates with racial privilege and the fact that if you don't own enough money to live in the right neighborhood. You get to poison your kids with the water the government gives you to drink. I mean, what do you do about that? And then, you know, uh, Pastor David and I were talking about having somebody share about Urbana. And um, David said, well, we could have Matt share, but his experience wasn't entirely positive. And I said, that's great, you know, because we're not really about drinking Kool-Aid here. We really want to think critically in the sense of the original German meaning, analytically, you know, and, and there are some things about anything. I hear once in a while that there's even things about my sermon that you think maybe could be improved. So, you know, if we have a tough time at a conference, either with ourselves or with the content of the conference, that's perfectly legitimate. We want to talk about those kind of things. Um, now, of course, you got to understand a little bit about Matt is not only is he white male, but he's a white male from Vermont. So that's, you can't get any whiter than I'm saying. <laughs> um, anyway. No, really, we value your sharing. But no, so, so next week, I expect that we're going to be looking at Galatians. And, and their privilege will come, race and privilege come up in Galatians. They come up repeatedly in the New Testament, but nowhere more obviously than in Galatians. Now, Galatians is not predominantly about the economic Race privilege that we have in the U.S., but I hope that we'll get to it at some point, because my son's been involved in some of these discussions and has had some experiences around these things. The son who's not living here, well, maybe also the son who lives here, but I can't talk about the son who lives here. But um, (laughs) and so I wouldn't, you know. But anyway, the point is, we'll look at uh, religious privilege. And its correlation with race next week, but then hopefully that 'll leave us enough time to talk about other matters of race and privilege. But for this week, we look at first Thessalonians, actually first and second Thessalonians, uh, because you remember you know so this is really a, a, a final conclusion or whatever, wrap-up of the series that's been going on for some time. We started with the Old Testament. What's the broad sweep of salvation history? The story that begins in in Genesis well, 1 to 3. That's really the prequel. And the story that begins in Genesis 3 and then carries on to the end of the Bible. And we've looked at that. We looked at the Old Testament and then how Jesus tied in with that because Jesus fulfilled it. And now we're doing two things this semester. We're looking at how that played out. Because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises in a yeah-but sense. Yes, he fulfilled the promises, but not entirely as people, as the Old Testament leads us to believe, not entirely as people expected, uh, not entirely as they will be fulfilled one day. And we're in the same situation that those first believers that received the New Testament, the same situation they were in, because the fulfillment has started, but it hasn't yet reached its culmination. And so we face certain issues today that they faced. And so what we'll be doing is going through the New Testament, and really it's two, killing two birds with one stone. It's a survey of the New Testament, but what in each New Testament book we'll look at what's the key issue in this book. And, and a key issue related to the living in the already-not-yet, living in between the ages. What's the key issue in this book and then that we also experience? And how does it affect the way we live? L- living after the first coming, before the second coming of Christ. And so the first issue we looked at from the book of Acts was the early church had to learn what, the kinds of things we were talking about this morning as we prayed for our missionaries, Eric and May, and as, as Matt shared about Urbana, the priority of missions. The priority of the unreached receiving the gospel. And that really is the core of the book of Acts. We have a new agenda. A totally new agenda. And really only one all-consuming agenda now. How do, does the world hear the gospel? That's our agenda. And then we looked in First Thessalonians, really uh, the focus of First Thessalonians was this disconnect between our lives and our values and our the truths we affirm and the culture that we live in. And now in, in Thessalonica, what that meant was persecution. What it means for us today sometimes is criticism or mockery. And sometimes a fair bit of that, as you see in this election cycle, we bring on ourselves or our leaders bring on us. And the Thessalonians could have felt the same thing, that the trouble they were going through was brought on them by their leaders. And so we looked at the issue of, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and telling them, look, why you don't give up the gospel just because it doesn't connect with our culture. And he also wrote to them about why you don't give me up as your leader. He said, you know, Paul said, yeah, my presence and the gospel have brought you persecution because they're at odds with your culture. But don't give up the gospel. And don't give up Paul, he said. Don't give up your apostle. Now today's scripture reading was first, from 1st Thessalonians. But actually the focus of today's text is 2nd Thessalonians. We start in 1st Thessalonians because there's an odd thing that, that we w- don't want to miss. An odd thing going on. You know, we think of the apostle Paul as a hero. Hero of the faith. We think whatever Paul says must be true. The first century, they didn't think that way. Paul was the most controversial figure that we know of from the first century. Basically, all of his, almost all of his letters, maybe not Philippians, but most of his letters are arguments with people. And a lot of those arguments are because people didn't like what he was teaching. Certainly, Galatians is that way. Thessalonians, he's arguing some people. Other people have been argued against him. So there's a, what we want to do is we want to figure out what the issue was and then what Paul's response to it is. But to set the context, for those of you who have finished already in the back, think of what it was like when you were in university. For those, some of you, some of you already, don't have to think and some of you are looking ahead. Let me give you another bit of racial reality here. When I was in university, I had gone from a high school that was classes, average size, 10 or 15 students, right? So you really had to be on your toes. You had to do your homework. You had daily homework. You had to be ready to present because you got called on. And I went to a university of ten, uh, over 10,000 and the classes were, you know, first year classes, right? Uh, f- 400, 500 people. So in university, uh, there was only basically two nights, maybe four nights a week, I, uh, four nights a, a year that I studied, right? And this is the racial part. This is how some white people do university. Not all. But you got to study before your midterms, a night or two before your midterms, and you've got to study before your finals, a night or two before your finals. You know, we don't have to get the Asian A thing, you know. There, there, there are a couple of A's in Caucasian, but it doesn't, a C is good enough for Caucasian, okay? Now, I didn't get C's. I got better than C's, you know. But anyway, the point was, there wasn't a lot of attention, and we didn't have to study. All you had to do was know when the final exam or the midterm exam was going to be or when the essay was due and then work like crazy for one or two nights. And just as a demonstration of my point, you know, I had a roommate in my first year who for 60 some odd days smoked dope every single night. You know, he and I had an agreement, I've mentioned, uh, you know, I wouldn't hold the Pentecostal prayer meeting in our room if he didn't smoke dope in our room. But, but, you know, he, he just, Until the mid-year or until the finals, you don't need to study, really. I mean, unless you want to get an A. Even then, sometimes you don't need to study. We can blithely go along until the last minute. And that's how a lot of us approach the second coming of Christ. You know, it's really not on our radar right now. There's a few times, actually three times in my life, where the second coming of Christ has really been on the front of people's minds, right? So in 1965, when we thought the Russians might nuke us, or we might nuke them, we didn't worry so much about nuking them, we worried about nuking us, them nuking us. When we thought they might nuke us, then, then Hal Lindsey wrote out a book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Number one bestseller, New York Times non-fiction list. Tens of millions of copies of this thing. All about the end times, and then sometime for some reason I don't remember why in the mid '80s Hal Lindsey uh, we we kind of revisited it, we, not regurgitated, but you know revised it and put out some more stuff. So in the, maybe it'd be the Iraq War, because a lot of this stuff was supposed to happen in the Middle East, you know, Iraq, Iran. So maybe that was it, the Iraq War as the uh, trouble with Iraq developed then. Okay, so Tim LaHaye put out a series of books. And then when the year 2000 was coming, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins put out that Left Behind series, books and movies, the whole thing. Huge. But apart from those three times in my life, we haven't given much thought. We don't give much thought to the second coming of Christ. And I draw attention to that now because perhaps you don't really care. It's not on the top front of your mind or anybody else's mind that. I think it will be again. If it happened three times in my lifetime, probably something will happen in the next decade or two where it's going to become an urgent issue again. And then when it becomes an issue, that's all we talk about. That's all we think about. And we try and figure out which events are going to come in what order and when the second coming of Christ is going to be and, and what's going to precede that. And we go through all these kind of gyrations. But they're the same kind of things that preoccupied the Thessalonian church Now, here's an interesting thing going on in Thessalonica is is it it happened. It started in today's scripture reading for 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul dealt with part of it. And then in 5, he dealt with another part. And he sent off his letter. And then he was worried about them, so he sent Timothy to them. And then Timothy came back. And apparently his first letter wasn't enough, or he didn't do it, right? Or they were arguing with him. And somebody else came in and gave some teaching that they said was from the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't from him. And he disagreed with it, and so he has to write a second letter. And while the second coming of Christ was a secondary point in First Thessalonians, it becomes the primary point in Second Thessalonians. So we'll start with First Thessalonians because that's where the issue comes up. But then our focus predominantly will be on the uh, Second Thessalonians because that's where Paul wraps up his teaching, and that's where it focuses on the, becomes the focus of the whole book. So turn with me to whatever page it is in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, verses 13 to 17. We'll start there. The verses are slightly different. I revised it a little bit since I put out your bulletin, but you got the idea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And in each case, we're going to look at what was the problem in the church of Thessalonica, and then what's Paul's response to that problem, and eventually how that response is relevant to us. Chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You know, we've got the idea of sleeping, right? People who've died. There's nothing more to it than that. We don't know what they're thinking of is behind that. The point is that they're not alive. It's a polite way of referring to the deceased. Verse 14. Oh, so, so here's the thing. And we'll see later as we're on. But they're worried about those who've died already. You know, we say that Christ could come back any time. Yeah, and he could. Even though we've been waiting 2,000 years. But they thought the same thing, and, and, and they hadn't been waiting 2,000 years. So when they said, when they heard that Christ could come back at any time, they thought it meant, like, maybe tomorrow. Now, 2,000 years later, we think any time could last a little bit longer. We don't know. But... They thought, any time. And those who are alive will be reunited with Christ. And somehow the idea got well, people have started dying. We know the alive with Christ. The those who are still alive will be reunited with Christ. But what happened with the dead people, you know, and, and they rotted. And, you know, after a year, they they, they collect the bones and put them in an ossuary or a, a, a jar. And for long-term storage? What's going to happen to these people? We didn't expect Christ to delay this long. I mean, it's been 10, 15 years. We didn't expect him to wait 10, 15 years before he came back. And, And what's going to happen now? And Paul answers that problem in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. And you see the distinction he's going to make between those who are already dead and those who are still alive. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, even Paul thought he might still be alive. We who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. One little clarification. The dead in Christ rise, then we rise and meet the Lord in the air, we'll be with him forever. We don't want to assume that we're going to be with him in the air or in some you know, non-physical heaven concept here. That that may not be an accurate assumption. What he's describing is the return of Christ the same way as a conquering general or returning emperor would come into Rome. And as the conquering general approached or the emperor approached the city of Rome, then the masses of the citizens would march out to meet him. And then they'd accompany him in a parade, a celebration, as he came back into the city with his trophies of war. And so the comparison is like this, that we will go to meet Christ, and then some scholars assume that the the rest of the analogy follows, then he will come and restore the earth and we will rule and reign with him. But the main point of this text is here. Paul's telling them, look, you don't have to worry about those who've died already. When Christ comes back, he's going to treat them the same way as he's treated us, he will look after them the same way he treats those of us who are still living. It doesn't matter whether they're dead or alive when Christ returns. Now, that's not an issue we struggle with. I think the closest contemporary application for us is this just the assurance that those who we care about, those in our lives who've predeceased us, they will, along with us, Celebrate together the glorification and the transformation that comes when Jesus returns. It's just another assurance that scripture gives us often that those who have died are not without hope, that our hope is resurrection with Christ and restoration to the glories of Eden and even more. Then Paul continues with a second issue, which is more aligned with ours in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 to 10. Now, brothers and sisters, About the times and dates. You see, same issue, just a different variation on the same issue. About times and dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, obviously, every analogy, ancient or contemporary, has points of similarity and difference. That's the point of an analogy. Uh, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night only means you're not going to know when he's coming. It's not like Jesus is coming to steal anything from us. All right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, woman, and they will not escape. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. This is all an analogy metaphor, right? How are we to be sober? We're to put on faith and love, the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, this is a problem that's familiar today. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about dates and times, we don't need to write you. And we want to say, oh yeah, you need to write to us, because we don't know. But that's exactly how they felt. When? You know, it's obviously not coming before our loved ones die. They've died already. Christ has not come. We expected him to be here already. How long is he going to wait? And they're wondering. And Paul says, look, I don't need to tell you about the dates and times. Well, which is good because Paul didn't know the dates and times. Jesus says no one knows the dates and times except the Father. But it's still a similar question we have today. What times and what dates? And... It's why all these books are being written. And it's why churches or Christians get sucked into paying out, you know, buying millions of these books to find out the dates and the times. And as one author who even said, well, we don't know the day or the hour, but we can estimate the year. It's just silliness. That's got no place for Christians. About the dates and times, you don't need to write you. And he didn't write them. He didn't know. They didn't know. But what he does say is, instead of fixating or, or speculating about the date and the time, and so many dates and times have been set. You know, the earliest date setters were back before the year 1000, as the, new, as the first millennium was coming to a close, first millennium post-Christ. There were people who speculated about when, when maybe Christ would come back then. And then in the 1800s, there's a whole another wave. And then in the 1900s, a whole another wave of date and time speculators. Paul says, this is not where you should spend your time. Where should we spend our time? Notice verses 9 and 10. Or notice, beginning verse 4. We are not a darkness that this day should surprise us like a thief. It doesn't need to surprise us. Because we know how to get ready for it. We don't need to know when the mid-year exam or the final exam is. All we need to do is study all the time. So we're ready all the time. And in their case, what is study? Verses 9 and 10. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. One line of reassurance. How do they receive salvation? Verse 10. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. How do we prepare for the end time? How do we not be caught by surprise? we live with him. When we're awake, we live with him. When we're alive, we live with him. So that when we're asleep, when we die, we will again live with him. And there's this correlation. Since we belong to the day, let us put on faith and love and the hope of salvation. Paul's point, the second point he makes here is, it doesn't matter when Christ returns. As long as we live for him. As long as we believe in him, we serve him, we wait for him. And it doesn't matter when he comes, we'll be constantly prepared. Now the third t- time he addresses this is in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 to 12. And now he switches to what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. God is just. He's talking to people who are undergoing persecution and in threat of giving up their faith. And he says to them, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and he will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Again, the same two criteria, do not know and do not obey. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and so on. Verse 10, he will be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among those who have believed. Again, the same two criteria. His, ho- his people are holy and they believe in him. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling so that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Same two criteria, every deed, Prompted by faith, faith and lifestyle. So here's the the third issue that they're struggling with is the persecution. For them life was hard. For us, at best, it's a little bit troublesome compared to them. But for them, their life was hard. They could die for their faith. And Jesus wasn't doing anything about it. You know, and, and the worst is the book of Revelation because they already started dying. And they ask, How long, O Lord, are you going to before you intervene, how long are you going to let us die? And Jesus said, A little while longer. What do you do with that? And Paul offers only this reassurance that for those who stay committed to Jesus and live for Him, then the end will set all of that right. The end will bring justice. In this life, we should try, but we may never succeed in having racial equality or or, or economic equality. It's been attempted, and so far has been a large-scale failure. Or there's a big gap between reality and ideality, the ideal. We may never succeed. And there will be injustices in this world that will frustrate us, If we care about it, mostly we're on the winning side, but as we care about or work with those on the losing side, there'll be injustices that frustrate and disturb us and that we can't overturn, just like there was for them. And here's Paul's third promise to them is justice will come. Maybe we can achieve small justice in our lifetime. We give ourselves to the pursuit of justice. But there is a day when justice will come. And those who've afflicted others will suffer retribution. And God's faithful people who've believed in him and lived for him, they will be honored by him. Then Paul turns finally to the fourth version of this whole topic in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Concerning the coming, really the timing, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So there's obviously some people teaching in Paul's name or writing a letter in his name or giving a prophecy that's telling them, okay, the day of the Lord has already come. And we don't know enough about what they meant by that. In what sense has the day of the Lord already come? We don't know. But there's obviously some false teaching about the second coming of Christ circulating even in Paul's own time, and he can't put an end to it, or he's trying to put an end to it. Verse 3, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you, for that day will not come until two things have to occur. And he gives them in reverse order. Secondly, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Somebody who rebels against God and puts himself in the position of God, must be revealed. And then, firstly, the second won't come until, firstly, the one who is restraining and controlling this man of lawlessness has to be taken out of the way. And then the second thing can happen. So these two things must happen. And Paul says, obviously, these things haven't happened yet. So Christ can't have come yet. Eventually, he'll come. Now, here's the thing we don't know what either of those things refers to we don't know who's restraining him and we don't know who the man of lawlessness is i'm going to take 90 seconds to give you my theory we don't know wait until i write a book and then you can buy the book you know that's what most of these guys spend all the time in these books writing about is who the man of lawlessness is and and who's restraining him it's all speculation this language comes from the book of daniel Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10. All the language comes from Daniel. And you see what happened in the book of Daniel. What Daniel was describing is dictators, anti-Jewish dictators, or dictators that put themselves up as gods themselves and demanded to be worshipped and challenged the Jewish worship of God. And that's what Daniel was describing by this language. And Paul says, look, that's not happening now. So Christ... It's not about to come yet. It's not quite happening yet. But you know, throughout time, it's happened often. In some parts of the world, you could, one part of the world or another, you could say pretty much all the time, there's some dictator putting himself up as God or denying that there's a God and opposing people who believe in God, putting himself up in that position where he challenges God, a man of lawlessness, and yet, some forces, God or the church, restrain him. And it never comes to f- full fruition. So you think just of, just of the, you know, 1940s alone. 1940s and 50s. You've got, whether it be Mao in China or you've got Hitler in uh, Germany or you've got Stalin in Russia, where you've got totalitarian regimes that either oppose religion or invoke religion to oppose what God is doing in the world. You could suppose, this is probably the best guess I can come up with, is that there's always someone on the stage seeking to do that. Use religion to oppose to oppose the work of God. Whatever it refers to, we can't be sure. We can only have the faintest guess. But again, it doesn't matter because Paul concludes this entire topic in all four sections the same way he's repeatedly stated thus far take a look at how he concludes in chapter 2 second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 we ought always to thank god for you brothers and sisters loved by god because god chose you as first fruits to be saved now how were they saved we have one of these two answers in our vocabulary. Often we overlook the other answer. God chose them to be saved as first fruits. How? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. God worked in their lives to save them through two factors, two experiences, two connections. Number one, they believed in the truth. They accepted the gospel. God saved them through faith. And number two, God gave them the Spirit to sanctify them, to help them to walk in holiness. What Paul is saying is, look, the man of lawlessness, the one who restrains him, the days and the hours, none of this matters. Because whenever Jesus comes, or whenever the man of lawlessness reveals himself, or or whenever the one who restrains him is taken out of the way, the only thing that matters throughout any of this time is these two realities that we believe in the truth of the gospel and that the Spirit be transforming us day by day? He chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul concludes, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Verse 16, he prays for them. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he do two things. May he strengthen you in every good deed, and may he strengthen you in his word. Again, those two things, that we should believe the gospel, that we should live in obedience. And this is all that matters about the second coming of Christ. He will return. He will come for his own living and dead. We don't need to know when. All we need to do is live in faith and in obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this blessing might be ours too. That by your word and by your spirit you might work in us in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise as we sing in response together.